saved? What do we have to do to be saved? What's the process of coming into the Christian faith and being fully alive, coming into the initiation uh, process of the Christian life? And we've been looking that their salvation is actually a process. It's not just one little decision we make at a point in time. It's a process of events that come together. And the first step is to repent, to ask our Father for forgiveness. And then we do that on the basis of belief in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Because we know who he is and what he's done for us, the logical step is to get right with God. And so repentance sets us right with the Father. Belief in the Son connects us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And today we're going to look at the third step of being fully born again. And we're looking today at baptism. Now from my roots, coming from an independent Baptist background, I'm quite sad to say that baptism was more about a human act of obedience than it was asking the question, What is God doing in the process of water baptism? I think in some theological circles and in some denominations, we've we've changed baptism to be a bit like a wet witness. You know, it's just something that we have to do out of obedience to God. And that's true. But I believe water baptism is so much more than that. We've actually dumbed it down. And we need to come back to seeing that baptism in the New Testament, particularly in the book of Acts, was part of a package deal in which we were preparing ourselves to receive the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Now, in my salvation process, I was taught to repent. I was taught to believe in Jesus Christ. I was taught to go through the waters of baptism. But then no one taught me about the Holy Spirit. So what happened was you get set up to try and live the Christian life, but you can't do it because there's no power. There's no anointing. There's no infilling. The three previous steps are all about getting rid of the junk and getting to that preparatory place of saying, Holy Spirit, come. And a lot of the conservative denominations are very frightened about talking about the Holy Spirit. But the reality is we have to deal with Scripture. We can't just take the bits and pieces that we like and that feel good. We've actually got to deal with the truth of God's word. And that's what we're looking at this morning. I want to tell you a story about someone that I read about. He was a hell's angel biker, covered in tattoos from head to toe. And he got to the point in his Christian walk where he knew that God was calling him to go through the waters of baptism. But he was terrified to do it because all down this arm, He had a tattoo of Satan and hell and a whole heap of expletives all over his arm. And he knew if he got into the water with his white T-shirt, suddenly everyone would be looking at this ghastly thing of the devil. And he was so fearful of doing that because he didn't want people to judge him. But, you know, he made the decision to do it anyway because he believed if Jesus could hang there on a cross naked for him, then he'd be willing to suffer the shame of what people might say. Now that man went down into the water of baptism and when he came up, that whole arm was totally clean skin again. So please don't tell me that baptism is just about what we do. It is about what God is doing in our life in a very serious way. Now baptism started with a guy called John the Baptist. 
He was not a Baptist pastor. He was not a member of the Baptist denomination. In fact, John the Baptist's name was a nickname. His real name was John the Dunker, John the Dipper, John the Soaker. Okay, you get the idea? And it became a nickname which in theological circles suddenly became John the Baptist with a capital B and all the Baptist people go, rah, rah, he was one of us. But that's not true. It, the principle was he was just known for dunking people in the River Jordan. That was who he was. And, and it's interesting to me that if we look back prior to John, John was the first person to do baptism. In human psychology, there's this connection between dealing with our dirtiness on the inside and washing right through history. If you think about Pontius Pilate, he tried to get rid of his guilt and clean his conscience by what? Asking for a bowl of water to come and washing his hands. So physically he was trying to do something for what was happening spiritually inside him. And right through history, that's a very common thing. Sometimes people that are caught in adultery or have an adulterous relationship try to have a shower and clean themselves up as if that makes it go away. But there is a connection. There's a connection between the spiritual and the physical. My point is that when we think about baptism, it's very much a washing and a cleansing of our past life. It's dealing with cleaning our insides up so that we're right before God. And it's linked back to Exodus chapter 29 when the priests were prepared and consecrated, set apart to be ministers for God. They did two things to them. They stripped them and they washed them, ceremoniously cleansed them in a, in a bath. They were washed very thoroughly. But then they were also anointed with oil and that prepared them for the priesthood. Now, when I read my scriptures, it tells me that we are now all priests. So two things have to happen. We have to have a spiritual bath to clean us up, which is water baptism, but we also have to have an anointing. Now, in the Old Testament, that was oil. In the New Testament, it's baptism, a second baptism into the person of the Holy Spirit, and we are anointed with him. Now, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus baptize people? Don't tell me. Put your hand up if you think he did. Did Jesus baptize people? Think he did? Glenn thinks he did. Glenn doesn't know his Bible because Jesus didn't baptize anybody. That's the point. Very good. Jesus did not baptize people in water because his baptism was to come after water baptism to baptize people into the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And that's, thank you, Glenn. You do know your Bible. I apologize. But that's the point. Oftentimes in our Christian circles, we, we say that water baptism is sort of the end of the process. It's actually not. It's a very dangerous place to be in to deal with sin to believe in Jesus, to go through water baptism, but then not be filled with the good stuff, the spirit of the living God. Now, for some reason, I don't know why there is a fear in Christian circles about talking about these things, but there is. If we read in Hebrews chapter 6, I think it's verse 1. If you've got a Bible there, I didn't put it up on the screen. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death 
and faith in Jesus, instruction about cleansing rites, and that interpretation in a lot of scriptures is baptisms, plural. Two baptisms, baptism in water and baptism into the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, if we look at John's baptism, which was a baptism of repentance, when people came to him to be baptized, he would say, prove to me that you are repentant and then I will baptize you. In other words, prove to me that you are in repentance and then I will baptize you into repentance. Let me explain it another way. It would be like me saying to a young couple, prove to me that you're in love and then I'll marry you into love. There's a consummation that comes. There's a climax, a fulfillment that comes in our repentance and our faith that is demonstrated when we are baptised in water. It's sort of, it's the, it's the finality of it. We don't have to keep on going on about repentance, repentance, repentance. We get to a place where God says, that's enough. You've done it. You're into repentance. We're baptised into it. It's something that we're already in, and then it comes to a consummation. Now, Jesus picked up the practice of baptism, but he didn't do it himself. He passed that responsibility on to the disciples, and I believe there's two reasons why. The first is what Glenn was saying, that Jesus' ministry when he went back to heaven was to baptise people into the Holy Spirit. But can you imagine the competitiveness that if you got baptised by Jesus and then I baptised somebody? Someone might say, oh, I got baptised by Jesus. Who did you get baptised by? Oh, Pastor Mark. And it could come become very competitive. And if we look through scripture, Peter and Paul eventually wouldn't baptise people either. Peter refused to baptise Cornelius. I think because the point is it doesn't matter who baptises you. The focus is not on the person doing the dunking. It's what's happening in the process of that event. Okay, I remember getting baptised in the Heathmont swimming pool in the middle of June in, I can't remember the year, 1980, and they forgot to turn the heaters on. And I remember going down into the, into the pool, freezing to death, and the pastor's asking me questions, and I'm like, I can't answer because my teeth are chattering like this. And I looked across, and he had a pair of waders on underneath his white robe, couldn't even feel it. But I was taught to go through that experience purely as an act of human obedience. Nobody said to me, Mark, God is doing something in that, in that moment. And I got robbed. Because if you look through scripture and you look through the experience of many people that are taught to see a wider picture of baptism, at that moment they go through the waters of baptism, incredible things happen because there's an expectation and an anticipation that God is going to do something. Okay, now how was baptism done in the New Testament? Good question to ask. It's really interesting that we talked last week about translating from Greek to English, right? And this is where we get stuck. When King James commissioned the King James Version of the Bible to be translated from Greek to English, when those scholars got to the word baptize, they didn't translate the word, they transliterated the word. Huge difference. 
because this is what the Greek word means. To drench, to dip, to duck, to dunk, to douse, deluge, soak, sink, swamp, and saturate. That's what baptize means. But the church at the time of King James was doing infant baptism and sprinkling. So for them to translate the exact meaning of the word would have flown in the face of their practice of baptizing babies. So they transliterated the word baptize. In other words, they spelt the Greek word with English letters. So it's not translated, it's transliterated because it would have flown in the face. That's my argument that you cannot baptize a child. Firstly, because it has to be an immersion. It's got to be a dunking, a dousing, and because it's a washing in water, that makes sense. But the second part of baptism is that it's a burial. It's got two elements to it. It doesn't really make sense to wash a baby because they're clean and cute and cuddly anyway, except if they poo their pants. But the sense of burying a brand new baby, what's the connection? It doesn't make sense. There's no purpose to do it. It's really interesting how they've transliterated that word, isn't it? And yet we need to stand on the truth of God's word. Now, at that point in history, they believed in a thing called baptismal regeneration. In other words, if I got a little baby and I sprinkled it on the head with some water and said some magical words over it, that that baby wouldn't go to hell. That process of baptizing that infant with water would just take it straight from any disaster or anything that happened to heaven. That's not a biblical principle. It's not a biblical principle. It's so sad today that we have lots of people running around still believing that there's a sense in which that child is going to go to heaven purely the moment that it's baptised as an infant. I believe our God is gracious enough to allow that child to grow to a point where it makes its own decision anyway. But we've got to teach people the truth. And we can't muck around with theology anymore. We've got to make the truth the truth, no matter how hard it hurts. And if those scholars back in King James' day had translated the word properly, we'd have birthed people into the fullness of what God wanted for us. We'd have followed in completeness. If you've got your Bible there, I want you to turn to John chapter 3, verse 23. If you ever get into an argument with someone who says that infant baptism is right, read them this verse. John chapter 3, verse 23. Someone want to read that out for me? You can actually read from verse 22 if you want. He's got a nice loud voice. John 3:22. Come on, you're all shy today. Go for it. Thank you. Okay, that'll do, Vicky. Thank you. Do you get the point? They had to go to Aeon Nisalim because there was plenty of water there. If you're just sprinkling people on the head, you don't need plenty of water. The biblical mandate is to immerse people into water, and we can't get away from that truth. You've got to stick with it. We can also read in Acts chapter 8, when Philip came across the Ethiopian eunuch riding on the chariot, he said, there's some water, let's get baptised. And the scripture says he goes down into the water, and came up out of the water. We need to teach people to expect 
that in that going down, there is a death, there is a washing, there's an identifying with the person of Jesus in his death and his burial, but there's also a coming up out of the water into a resurrected life. And that resurrected life is living in the power that raised Jesus from the dead. And so when we look at baptism in the Holy Spirit next week, that is that power coming upon us. Jesus told his disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. Now, I don't know about your life, but I spent 16 years of my life trying to live without the full truth. And I'm so angry that people didn't disciple me and didn't tell me the truth and left me to fail. You cannot live a life without being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And I know lots of people get fearful about it being some experience that's, that's off the planet. But if the third person of the Trinity indwells you, if he comes upon you and touches your life, surely you would know that. I can tell you the day I was baptized, what the weather was like, what the water was like, and who baptized me. And I'm sure you can all remember back to the day you can tell me that when that happened, who it was, where it was, what the weather was like. But lots of people, when you ask them if they were baptized in the Holy Spirit, they go, I don't know. I'm not sure. Do you see how that's illogical? And we're going to look next week at how important it is that we teach people to receive the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Trinity. No one has a problem with repentance and getting right with the Father. No one has an issue with believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was the Son of God who died for our sin. But somehow we have a disconnect when we want to teach about the Spirit of God. And people get fearful. And I know from my independent Baptist days, I was indoctrinated to believe that those things were somehow not of God. And to come to a point in a journey where you lay that theology down, where you come against what you've been taught from people that you respect and honour, and then look at the Word of God in its truth, that's a hard place to be in. It's a hard place to be in because you know that you've been lied to in some sense. You know that some of the things that you've structured your life around don't hold any, any truth anymore. And it takes a lot of humility to come to that point of realising I haven't been told the truth or the whole truth and come to a place where you ask someone to pray for you. And we'll get that into, into that a little bit more next week. Okay. I want to just talk a little bit this morning about the Old Testament and how it relates to baptism. Do you remember the story of Noah? The flood came. He had to build the ark. The flood came and the, the earth, the, the universe as we know it then, was totally changed and Noah and his family were saved. I want you to realise that that event is a picture of New Testament baptism. That through water, God dealt with the past and brought a new beginning. When we get to the story of Moses and crossing the Red Sea, it's exactly the same analogy. That, going through those waters and out the other side, the people of Israel were baptised into Moses because Moses was a type of Jesus. 
looking down through history, he was someone that we can look back at and say he was just like Jesus. And the people of Israel were baptized into Moses through that event. And he became their leader. There was no more question about his authority or his closeness to God. But who did they leave on the other side? They left Pharaoh. They left their past. They left everything that was holding them back. That is exactly the same principle of our baptism. When we go through those waters of baptism, we are saying to Satan and to our past and everything that's had influence over us, you are cut off. You have no authority over my life anymore. You are separated from me completely and we are set free. That's why baptism in water is a consummation. It's a celebration of saying, I am totally free from my enemy. And we're able to raise up in the power of Jesus Christ, the resurrected power, and walk in the fullness of what God wants for us. They're beautiful pictures. Those two analogies of those two Old Testament stories are a great way of us understanding that through the simple element of water, God is doing something incredibly powerful, incredibly spiritual. And God wants us to go through those waters of baptism with that understanding. It's a bit like this. It's your funeral. Enjoy it. Because that's what it is. You can look Satan in the eye and call his bluff now. He has no right to you anymore. You can't dig up those things from the past and throw them at you anymore. They have no hold over you. Pharaoh was left on the other side of the Red Sea. And if Christians understood that when they went through the waters of baptism, that everything in their past has been separated from them, that they're cut off from it. If they just knew that, they would live in so much more power, so much more freedom, so much more joy in their life. It's been severed. Remember we looked at repentance as being like the baby's umbilical cord, cutting that cord, separating it from its mother, making it an independent little being. Same thing with us going through those waters of baptism. I'm cut off from my past. All those things that, that were held over me, they're gone. It's the final goodbye. Now, here's an interesting thing. I've done a few funerals, not a lot, but when you go and talk to the family leading up to the funeral service, it's almost as if it's not final. Even though the person could be dead and lying there, it's still present tense when they talk about that person. But when you stand at the graveside, and you watch that casket go down, and then you talk to them, suddenly that event has become the finality. When you see that coffin go down into the grave and they start to put some dirt on it, something happens there, which makes it a final thing. And for us, that's that burial in water. It's the final point. It's the beautiful consummation of what God wants to do with us. So remember last week we talked about those historical facts of Jesus dying on a cross, being buried and raising again are objective to us. They happened 2,000 years ago. But through faith in Jesus Christ and obedience of going through the waters of baptism, that crucifixion becomes ours. That burial becomes ours. And that resurrection becomes ours. Those same things that happened to Jesus become my very own personal experience. And we need to teach people to expect that. You ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. I have been crucified with Christ. 
I know he's been crucified because I've been crucified. I know he was buried because I was buried. And I know he's alive because the spirit of the living God lives in me. And my thesis next week will be that we need to know that, we need to have experienced that, and we need to walk in the fullness of that, no matter what our past is, no matter what we've been taught before, we need to come to the book of Acts and read that everywhere the apostles went, there was an expectation of laying on of hands, praying for the third person of the Trinity to be received. It's an act of faith. They're all acts of faith. Repentance is faith. Believing in Jesus is faith. Water baptism is faith. Faith that God is doing something in your life at that point. And then receiving the Holy Spirit is an act of faith. And we need to come with an expectation that God is going to answer that. He wants to. But you're going to live a sad Christian life if you've repented, if you believe in Jesus, if you've been through water baptism, but you're not filled with the Spirit. You're going to be a sour old Christian with a lot of hang-ups because you don't have the power, you don't have the boldness, you don't have the fullness of God's plan. Does that make sense that sometimes that's very scary for people to embrace that? If you've come to Christ in a Pentecostal church, there's not an issue because you've never been told anything different. But like in my journey, I didn't believe that the gifts of tongues were from God because I was told that they were from the devil. And yet when I read my Bible, I thought, well, that's pretty illogical because that would mean that the apostles were demonic because they spoke in tongues. And so you have to go back to Scripture and work out for yourself with this book alone what is absolute truth and let God reveal it to you. I don't need to convince you what's in here. And that's what we need to teach people. We need to teach them to study God's Word. You know, I'd love to go back to some of those pastors now and challenge them. But you know something? I don't think it would make any difference because they didn't want to embrace the truth. There was a fear there. There was something happening in their mindset that said, I don't want to embrace the fullness of God. And the only reason I could understand that they wouldn't want to go there is that the enemies made them so fearful. Why would the enemy want to stop us? Why? You think about the apostles in the upper room waiting for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, terrified, behind closed doors, locked, too frightened to let anybody in. That's what a lot of Christians live like. Then you see Peter stand up on the day of Pentecost and what? Boldness, courage, tenacity. Silver and gold I don't have, but in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. See the difference? We've got to move from that place of just being in obedience and in belief to being in the anointing and the saturation of the person of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. It is a baptism because just as you go down into the water and you're immersed in water, Jesus comes along. When you ask him, please, Lord, fill me with the Holy Spirit, Jesus is the one doing the baptizer. John the Baptist was the dick. Dipper, the dunker, the soaker. Jesus is the dipper, the soaker, the drencher, the anointer. And when we experience that anointing, your Christian landscape will just change incredibly. 
Now, I know of stories and I've witnessed people coming up out of the waters of baptism and as they come up, the Spirit of God comes upon them and they prophesy or they speak in tongues. They didn't even have to get to the point of asking. Now, God is God and he will do what he wants where he wants. But my point is we need to check those boxes off. Have I repented? Have I really come to a place where I acknowledge just not regret or remorse but that I've sinned against my Father in heaven? Have I asked God, what is there in my closet that needs to be dealt with? And we bring that to the altar, we ask God to forgive us, and it's done. And we do that because we believe in Jesus, who he was, what he commanded us to do. We go through the waters of baptism, not just as an act of obedience, but because it's a death, it's a burial, it's a spiritual washing, and we come out of that with the expectation that an infilling is going to come. Now you think about it. If the Spirit of God fills you up and starts from your toes and he fills you up and fills you up and fills you up and fills you up and fills you up, it's got to come out somewhere when you overflow. You have a few orifices in your body. okay? And God's chosen vessel is for it to come out our mouth, for there to be a sign of the infilling of God. Okay, now my theology is a little bit different from a lot of people. I don't necessarily believe that you have to speak in tongues. Some people prophesy, but there needs to be an understanding that there is a manifestation of the Spirit of God. When we look in Acts next week, we'll see that everywhere the apostles went, they looked for the signs, the evidence, the proof. So if I got a big bottle of Coke now and shoved something down Daryl's mouth and filled him up, Somewhere it's going to come out, right? And that's the biblical principle. When we're immersed in the Spirit of God and he fills us, something will happen to demonstrate that that event has happened. In the majority of cases, it will be the gift of tongues. I don't know what the percentage is. I don't have one. But I know I've seen people prophesy. And to me, that's self-evident because they were saying something that they had no mental, cognitive place for it was coming from their spirit it's a huge topic and and i totally understand if you've come from a conservative background that this is all very new and confronting and that's okay nobody's pushing an agenda to force anything upon anyone Uh, my challenge is go back to scripture go back to scripture and ask god to show you the truth now that truth for me took many many years to finally get to its fullness I'll tell you one story in closing. It's a pretty personal story. I remember being in Bible college and friends of ours at the church we were in, it was a church that had a fairly big cross-section of people, conservative, middle of the road, and a lot of Pentecostal people. And this one home group that we are involved in, um, these people were right out on the edge, really Pentecostal. They were South African, Linda. I don't know if that means anything. but they invited us to this home group because they had a prophet coming and his name was David MacDonald and I remember sitting in my theology classes at college thinking I'm going to go and show this guy up to be a charlatan I'm going to go there and prove that this prophecy it's just a load of garbage just made up stuff anyway so we got to the home group and they'd invited a number of people and we're sitting around the room and uh He preached first, and I thought, you know, being a good Baptist, we know how to preach God's Word. He preached, and it was really good. 
and thought, oh, I can't get him on that. There was no heresy in there. Anyway, he started to pray for people in the room, and he called people up, and they came and he prayed. I was sitting with a guy called Brad Jen, who's become a good friend of mine. We were right over here. This guy was standing right over there, and Brad and I were having a conversation, and Brad was saying to me, Mark, I've got this real burden. I want to, I want to go to Africa and be a missionary. Can't remember the country. Do you remember the country? Kenya. I remember him vividly telling me that story. And then this guy called him up and he put his hand on him and he prayed over him and, and said, mate, I can see that God's called you to go to Africa. You're going to go to a country called Kenya and blah, blah. And he went on and on and on and on. I'm like, this room's bugged. There's bugs <laughs> in the room. He's been listening to our conversation. And truth is, Brad has gone to Kenya and become a missionary and adopted kids. And then I was very fearful of tongues, very fearful of anything that was out of the ordinary. And he called my name up. Young man, you come up here. And I'm slowly walking up. If you could have seen what was happening on the inside, I was having kittens. And I'm like, Lord, please don't let him pray over me in tongues. I couldn't cope with that. And please don't embarrass me in front of all these people. And I walked up and as I'm walking up to him, he said, are you on your own? I said, no, my wife's here, Cheryl's sitting over there. And he said, well, Cheryl, you come up too. And as Cheryl stood up, started to walk to the front, he said, so when's the baby due? He had my attention. We'd just been to have a scan. We were the only people on the face of the planet that knew that Cheryl was pregnant. No one else knew. So he had my attention straight away. <laughs> Finally, <laughs> says Cheryl. So I remember standing in front of this guy and he put his hand on my head and started to laugh and then he started to pray in tongues. And boy, if I could have had the ground just you know, swallow me up right at that point, it, it should have. But he, but he stopped and he just said, Mark, look at me. And I couldn't look at him in the face. I could not even get my head up because I felt God touching me. Look at me, Mark. And I finally got the courage to look up and I could feel my chin starting to quiver. You know how you get to that point where you know the tears are going to flow. And he looked at me and he said, Mark, your father wants to tell you, stop worrying about the money. I'd just gone into Bible college. Cheryl will tell you, I was having kittens about how we were going to pay to get through college. I was having an ulcer, effectively. And he said, Mark, just stop worrying. God's called you to ministry. God will pay your way. Trust him. Stop worrying. And then he prophesied a whole heap of other things that I knew for me was like someone just opened my life out and spoke directly to my needs and my hurts and my dreams and my aspirations. When you experience something like that, it can never be the same. You know it's truth because it's become experiential. It's based on fact, the fact of those things being true in my life or coming true in my life. But it's the same when we're baptised into the Spirit of God. 